This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity with Pat Hazel, and caught in my snare today is an award-winning screenwriter, director, author, and chief storyteller for the Belief Agency. Please welcome Brian McDonald. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free. You're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. You're such an extraordinary guy, and people in on this particular podcast, I think a lot of the people that I know, people haven't heard of, and I consider them to be secret weapons of mine. You happen to have a superpower of being a great storyteller, and that applies to everything that you do in directing and so forth, and I like to dive in. So I want to ask you why a good story is like medicine. One of the best examples for me of stories as medicine is any 12-step program. It's just people sharing stories with each other and they are medicinal and everybody understands that. But I think that's true in life as well. So it may not be formal like a 12-step program, but if somebody's in trouble, you may have a story that helps them with it. My dad was sort of famous for that. My dad's name was Roscoe, everybody called him Rock. People would say Rock always had a story. If you were in trouble, you go to him and he'd have a story that could help you through it. It was so important to people that several people mentioned it at his memorial. So as an outstanding characteristic of a human being, that he always had medicine for you in the form of a story. So I think everybody knows it. Not everybody has put a label on it. The sort of mythology of story is why stories got told in the first place. That was to give warning or to keep people telling where the lion was or where the poison mushrooms were, right? Yeah. Well, and you can hear it. You'll hear any writing class or anything will say, oh, stories need conflict. You have to have conflict. They don't explain why, but they still say, oh, it's more interesting. Well, why is it more interesting? Why is that inherently more interesting? Because I believe stories are exist to pass on survival information, which is partly what you were talking about. Since that's what I think they exist for, that's why they contain conflict, because conflict is the thing that you need to learn how to survive. And so you can hear people in conversation give each other survival information. They'll talk about some horrible thing that happened. Oh, that happened to me one time. And they'll have a story about it. And that story is meant for you, I think, to take on and go, okay, I got to be careful of this. I got to be careful of that. I have a friend who, when her daughter was very young, she's a teenager now, but when she was very young, you'd get in the car and she was, uh, you know, always about put your seatbelt on when she was a little kid. Like you have to put your seatbelt on because she had a story in her head. My friend, when she was a little girl, fell out of a car in the late 60s or because there were no seatbelts, right, right, right. Or she wasn't seatbelted in and they turned a corner, the door flew open and my friend flew out. And so the, the little girl knew that story. And so what always, you have to put your seatbelt on and here's why, right? She understood that that was survival information. I've been that person. My grandfather's DeSoto 
when you could fi- put five or six people in the back seat, yeah. right? Uh-huh. And my brothers and I, we were all little and crawling around in my mom's lap. I was leaning against the door. One brother was playing with the handle and one was pulling up and down the lock knob and that door opened and I went out on a 10 mile road in Michigan and my grandfather saw me in the rearview mirror on the street. And that was why he stopped the car. Really? Wow. Yeah. So it's, I don't really remember it, but I yeah. think maybe when I fell on my head is when I was made creative or something. <laughs> I was gifted with a new, uh, some kind of new powers. <laughs> so here's, here's what's fascinating to me is that story, good story can be so simple and so elegant. Mm-hmm. And people in, are pretty intuitive about telling stories at the Thanksgiving table. Why is it when they try to write a story down, they want to complicate it? We don't talk about storytelling very much in any real way and any sophisticated way. We talk about literature. We talk about those kinds of things, but we don't talk about how people use stories on a regular basis and every day. And so because we don't recognize it, it's so natural. Storytelling is so natural to our species that we don't pay attention to it, but we pay attention to literature because that's not natural to our species. We made that up. We invented that. And so literature has rules and it has all these these things you have to learn and something you have to master. And so when people sit down to write, they think their job is to create literature. They don't think their job is to create stories. I think that using the verb writing to mean both physically writing and writing a story or creating a story, I think that we need different words for those things. So what happens is people think they're telling a story if they are merely writing And that's not true. And they don't understand their job is to tell a story. And they already know everything about how to do that. There was a great writer, older guy who wrote on Andy Griffith and all kinds of things, a guy named Bill Idelson. And I used to go to his classes on scholarship, he said, which were at his home for screenwriters and sitcom writers. And scholarship was, I didn't have to pay the $5 towards the cookie fund or something, right? But he used to, somebody would read from something and then he'd say, that wasn't writing, that was typing. Mm Mm-hmm. Like you're three days early for the story. I don't care what they ate for breakfast. I don't care what right. the color of the plaid shirt yep. was. Let's get to where the conflict is heightens the character where we care as a viewer. This is the day we enter the story. The first 15 pages, get rid of that. It's like when somebody tells me, oh, you should read this book. The first 100 pages are kind of slow and then it kicks in. And I'm like, oh, you're saying it's 100 pages too long. Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> like, Yeah. Yeah. Start on page 100. Right? I know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Maybe the book should come with a bookmark, right? Start here. <laughs> the backstory is all set up for you. But I find that people, again, now I talk about writers, not just normal people, but their instinct to be creative, since that's the sort of topic of our discussion, is that they want to be creative by breaking the rules. Right. Right? They want right. to throw structure out yeah. and say, look at how daring I am to not have any structure or something as a self-sabotaging technique. How is it better for there to be boundaries to help tell a story? One of the things I've noticed when I, when I have students is that the people who want to be different, they come in and they're like, I don't want to be like everybody else. And so they have a list and the list usually is, I don't want to have a happy ending. Whatever the list is, the list is always the same. So, It turns out everybody wants to be different in exactly the same way. They're not being as creative as they think. They're just fitting into a different cliche. They usually know what they don't want to do. They don't know what they're trying to do. I don't want 
to be like everybody else. I don't want to follow these rules. I don't want, it's like, what do you want to do? Often they'll say, I want an ambiguous ending. That's a big one. (laughs) And it's like, well, why do you want that? Is that helping you tell the story you want to tell? If that's the case, it will have an ambiguous ending because that's your point. If that's not your point, then what you really want to do is not finish. Like it's too hard to finish. So I'll just have it be ambiguous. Often people hide behind this idea of creativity because the other thing is hard. What's your advice to half finishers? A lot of people have a lot of ideas and they get to a halfway point and they're excited and then they something else gets their attention, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, uh, oh, that's a shinier object. I'm going to work on that. And then they say, I've got this idea and I've got five ideas. And I always say, a man with two watches never really knows what time it is. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, you know, yeah. I don't think I was the first one. That sounds a little old-fashioned in terms of its writing. But, but, <laughs> but in terms of focus, how do you encourage somebody to finish something as the actual journey? Not so much the results of it, right. but the act of finishing. For writing, it's one thing. And creativity in general, I think it's another. Maybe it's not. But I think mostly in terms of writing. So I'll put it in those terms. So to know what you want to say. And that's a really important part of finishing because what happens is if people don't know why they're doing what they're doing, then they lose steam in the middle. They often think that the writing will come through the, or the story will come through the act of just producing words. And when that doesn't happen, they abandon the project. Oh, it doesn't go anywhere. It's like, well, you didn't know where you were going. So you got lost. That's what happened. The other thing is it gets hard. It's way more fun to think of a story than to actually write one. And so when it gets hard, people often abandon it. And believe me, I don't like writing at all. I don't don't like doing it. I like two things. I like thinking of the idea and I like seeing it when it's done. And that crap in the middle, I am not a big fan of. That's what has to happen. That stuff in the middle. That's the job. That If you're lucky enough to get paid, that's what they pay you for. Yeah, that's definitely the heavy lift. Yeah. Also, like if I'm writing something and I have an idea, because the idea you're not, the thing you're not working on is always better. Oh, when I finish this, this next thing going to be so much fun and so much more easy and so much, right? The, the next thing is always more fun. The thing that's just in your imagination. It's like meeting somebody and being attracted to them and that you don't know, you know what I mean? Nothing wrong with them. They're perfect, right? <laughs> right. It's like that. It's what a new idea is like. And what I usually do is I will, if I have an idea as I'm writing, I will then say, oh, that's another thing I can write. And I'll make a note of it. And that's another thing I can write. It's like, that's not part of this. That's the next thing I'll do. And it allows you to stay on track. I also use it as a treat to myself. When I'm done with that, this, I can work on that. So I use it as as a little bit of a carrot. That's great. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I think that every act of art or creation is an act of courage. I think that's true. Because you make a commitment to it. The ones I don't pursue, usually it means it wasn't a good enough idea to lose sleep over. Right. But once you grab it and you go, come hell or high water, I need to express this. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a very interesting, you say the why, what's the why, or what is it you're trying to say? In poetry, that's a universal theme, right? Is this about redemption? Is this about cooperation? Is this about can brothers be friends? Whatever that right. theme is. Right. But oftentimes people aren't that clear when they start. I'm going to write a caper movie. I'm going to write a sci-fi. They start with a genre. Right. They often do. Yeah. Maybe you can express why genre 
matters so much less than story, meaning that that's a veneer that you can put on anything. Yeah, I always call it the clothing that the story wears. I was just reading about George Lucas, and George Lucas grew up in Modesto, California. I mean, it was idyllic in its way, but he didn't want to get stuck in Modesto, California. And his father owned a hardware store. He thought, this is not going to be my future. I can't do this. A lot of arguments with his father about it. His father's like, you're never going to make any money doing that movie thing you're talking about. And one of my scenes in the original Star Wars that I love is when he wants to leave and he can't leave because his, his uncle's like, you have to stay on and help me on the farm. He goes out and there's the two sons. He's dreaming about what he wants to do. What I like about that is that's just George writing about being a kid in a small town, dreaming of bigger things. It doesn't matter that it's in space. That's not the human part of it. You could just as easily have done it about some kid stuck in Modesto, California, who wanted adventures and wanted all those things. Those things, that's who he was. So the genre doesn't make any difference. Akira Kurosawa liked American Westerns, like John Ford specifically, and made a lot of his samurai movies sort of in the way that he saw John Ford Westerns. And then going back, right, he makes Seven Samurai, and then we make Magnificent Seven, a Western based on a samurai movie inspired by Westerns. <laughs> right, right. And both Sam and Sam, Seven Samurai and Magnificent Seven are really good movies. The same story, it's just the clothing is different. Science fiction is a really good example. People say science fiction like, and they think that means something, but it doesn't mean anything because 2001 A Space Odyssey is a science fiction. So is E.T., so is Alien. Those movies have nothing to do with each other in terms of the reality that they that they exist in. It's only some version of the future. I mean, we can throw Star Wars in there too, right? Even though it says it's a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, it's essentially the future, right? <laughs> right. So, but it's a very they're very different kinds of things. Like two thousand one uses science more; the other ones sort of abandon science. The science isn't part of it. So, why is it science fiction? Oh, because they're in space. Well, that's a pretty thin, you know, E.T.'s not even in space, but he's an alien. So, but, you know, that you can poke a hole in that pretty quickly. So genre usually makes no sense. It breaks down very, very quickly. What ends up happening is people often combine genres to make it make sense. Well, it's kind of a comedy science fiction. It's kind of a, they, they have to start combining things. Uh, yeah. Create a hybrid so that they can make the audience understand what their intent is. <laughs> right, yeah. I know you're a longtime student of Rod Serling mm -hmm. as a storyteller. And when he did Twilight Zone, there was a specific reason that he was creating that genre. Yes. And maybe talk a little bit about that, because I'm that's a sort of a mind blower at the time that he took that on. Yeah. So a lot of people don't know about Rod Serling's work before the Twilight Zone. Before he did the Twilight Zone in the 50s, he was writing live television dramas. So, you know, there was no videotape and they had to perform these things. It was like plays and people perform these things live. And he was writing there. He actually won, I think, four Emmys before he ever did the Twilight Zone. He was famous before he ever did, did the Twilight Zone. And these were stories of gravitas, right? They yeah. had some meat on the bone. Yeah, these were stories of, you know, about real things and real people in the real world and nothing Twilight zone about them. In 1955, there was uh, the lynching of Emmett Till in Mississippi. That really bothered Rod Serling. Rod Serling had sort of a lifelong 
hatred of, of race and prejudice. It was, it really bothered him a lot. In his last interview, he talks about somebody sending him something like a white supremacist thing. And he's like, I'm not a violent guy, but when I read that stuff, I just want to go mow all those guys down. Like he really had a, an issue with it. And he wanted to tell the story of the lynching of Emmett Till. And the network didn't want to let him do it. The networks, like the movies, were always worried about the Southern market and making them upset. So uh, they're like, you can't tell that story about Emmett Till. And it really bothered him. And he always wanted to talk about real things that were really happening in the world. In one of his pieces, it might have been the piece that was going to be the Emmett Till piece. It ended up being something else. There was a reference to Coca-Cola. And Coca-Cola is based in Atlanta. So they're like, you can't say Coca-Cola. That's Southern. And then people will know what we're talking about. Like stuff like that. So they would really like just cut his pieces to, to shreds. And so when he stopped doing live television stuff, he created the Twilight Zone as a way to talk about the things he wanted to talk about, but do it in disguise. And even though right now at this end of history, he's more famous for the Twilight Zone than anything else, it was really considered a step down that he was doing this science fiction show and not doing serious drama anymore. But he said, I knew that I could have uh, Martians say things that they wouldn't let me have Republicans and Democrats say. He knew exactly what he was doing and what he was writing about. And that that stood the test of time even more than his other stuff. So in a way, maybe they did him a favor by making him disguise it. In that influence, one of your early short films, Whiteface, was essentially a story about clown Americans that were looked down upon because of their clown race and sort of through a light lens or a mockumentary. Is that fair to say? Yeah. You created a very powerful piece about racism, which was nobody hires a clown. Nobody's going to get a clown doctor or right. send their kid to that clown college or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah, right. right. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting how humans can digest the puppet show version of making fun of the king easier sometimes than the truth held in front of them. Well, there's a long history of animal stories being used just that way. We think of animal stories in our particular culture as children's stories. A lot of Aesop stories have animals in them, but they weren't written for kids. They come to us that way. But when they were first being told, they would often be used in court to prove cases they were considered very serious things. Certain cultures will use animal stories and they're very serious. They're not meant to be for kids. And we do it, but we, we're not aware of it. So something like Animal Farm, which is a very serious story, but we're using animals because animals, you can use them as sort of stand-ins because you can take one characteristic of them. So in Animal Farm, the pigs are the greedy and charge. Those are the, you know, and there's the workhorse and there's, so you're able to sort of see more clearly, even though you're obscuring the thing, it's a very interesting thing, but we do it all the time with, and, and in fact, the way we use animal stories, I'm trying to think of a good example of an animal story that we use. Well, here's an interesting thing I'll add is that when you have a species, you can't necessarily identify it as a race. Right. You you identify it as a type. Right. So you say, oh, those people are stubborn. And it works for all of us. It's a MacGuffin in some ways, uh, if that's the right word there. But it's sort of like, I see what I want to see in it. You see what you want. And it's always not us. Right. It's always all of them. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. <laughs> There's a story. It's an African story about a um, animals hanging out and hang, playing around the elephants like young animals. 
the baby lion is stomped on by an elephant and and killed. And so all the other animals are like, oh, we have to tell the lion what happened. So they go to the lion and they go, we're sorry, but your son was killed. And the lion is really angry. And he's like, he says, well, they have to pay. Whoever did this has to pay. I won't rest until they and the, until there's justice. Who did this to my son? Who killed my son? And the animals say the elephants did it. And the lion says, no, it wasn't the elephants. It was the goats. The goats did it. Let's attack the goats. What I like about that story is that people will often pick a fight that they know they can win. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I'm not going up against any elephants. Let's blame somebody else. We've done that in our history, right? <laughs> right? Of course. Right? But it's a very serious story meant to be contemplated and meant to be understood and to be used to make you wiser about how the world works. It's not a story about elephants and lions. Let me ask you about process. And Uh this is an interesting thing. The difference between analog writing and digital writing. I happen to subscribe to both. I find that when I write on a yellow pad, that my writing comes from my heart to my head, to my hand, to the page. And I get a lot of really good stuff out that way. Now, I also take it and put it in my computer. And when I get it in the computer and I'm editing, I work differently. So uh, what's your process in those? And, you know, what's your take on the differences? My process would be different than most. I will say that there's something interesting about writing things down. And I will occasionally write things down by hand, but that's not my preferred method. I'll talk about why in a little while. But my friend, August Wilson, he said that he was writing, he was in a restaurant and he was writing things down on a napkin. And the server saw him and she said, why are you writing on a napkin? Is it because it doesn't count? And he said, oh yeah, that is why. Like it doesn't count if I write on a napkin, it made him a little freer. And sometimes I will do that to make myself feel freer because once I put it in the computer, it seems some more, somehow more permanent. That can be a problem. But for me, because I'm dyslexic, writing was always a barrier between me and the storytelling. It does not an automatic process to write, I have to think about each word that I write. It may go pretty quickly. It may not look like that's what I'm doing, but I have to remember how to spell every word. It, you know, and it become it's a chore that when I'm typing in the computer, it doesn't really matter. It'll spell check. It'll tell me what's wrong. You know, and so uh, it flows better for me. But that's a strategy that comes out of being dyslexic. Other people may not have that strategy. So for me, it's much harder to just sit down and write a bunch of stuff down. Mostly if I do that, I'm just making little notes. This is partially training from school too. What you notice as a dyslexic when you're in school is people don't care about content. Let's say you write a tale of two cities and you say it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. And the teacher will say, oh, wow, you wrote a tale of two cities. That's not what they say. What they say is you didn't spell worst right. What you learn is that's more important than content to the education system. So the person who can spell... Their content is awful. They think they can write, however, because they can spell and they will know where the commas go. Right, right, right. They can't. They can't actually tell stories, but they don't know that because they can spell. And so what happens for me is that I start thinking of my writing in that way. So if I start to write by hand and I'm like, I didn't spell that right. I'm not. Now I'm caught up in that. Right. That's old programming. So the way to circumvent that programming is to type it in the computer. Here's the thing. They teach the creativity out of us. That's the first thing they do is they 
don't play around. Nobody plays right now. We're doing this. <laughs> right. We're working on cursive. We're going to get this down. We're working on, yeah. right, yeah. the structure. I dated a woman who was really bright, and but she was a grammarian, right? Everything was, the grammar had to be just so. Right. And in comedy, I'm like, comedy doesn't <laughs> play by that rule. Right. <laughs> and she would correct things, and I go, now it's absolutely not funny. Right. Somehow you <laughs> put a filter on that and suck the funny out of yeah. it. But she was also, at the time, writing for NPR, and everything oh, right. was very yeah, structured sure. and so forth. I would send her a funny letter, and it would come back corrected, <laughs> and I'd go, oh, you so didn't get it. You didn't understand. Well, another question about the process is the incubation period, the moment from cocoon to butterfly moment, right? That cocoon mm -hmm. period. Just a little bit about you know how you deal with that gestation period of you have a good idea and and then yeah. how, maybe even how it transfers to when you're now ready to write like lightning so it depends on the idea so sometimes ideas are fully formed and sometimes you know there's an idea there and it could be the smallest thing something somebody said it could be a picture you saw it could be a shot in a movie or a scene in a movie sometimes i see scenes in a movie i go well there's your movie why isn't that whole thing a movie or whatever? So sometimes it's something like that. Occasionally for me, it'll be a time and a place that I find interesting, but I know there's, that's not a story. So I sit on it. Sometimes it can be decades where it's just back there. Sometimes I'm not ready to write it. I'm like, I'm not good enough to do that yet. If I'm correct, I think Steven Spielberg had the rights to Schindler's List for a while before he made it because he didn't feel he was ready to make it. And so I, I think that, that sometimes that happens. And so I just, I'm not ready now. That's too advanced. I'm gonna get some more writing under my belt and a couple more years and then come back to it and revisit it. So I do that sometimes. But when something is ready to be born, it lets you know, as long as you know you're not procrastinating. In some ways, procrastination can be part of the process. I stopped beating myself up over procrastination. I was writing something as years ago. I was reading an interview with James Cameron and he had just written, it was right after Terminator 2. He's talking about how he hates writing. And he was talking about how, oh, when I write, you know, I sit down and then I realize I have to rearrange all the books on my bookshelf and I have to do this and I have to do that. And I just thought, well, if you can write Terminator 2 and you have that same thing that I do to procrastinate, I, I'm like, maybe that's part of the process. Maybe that's just part of it, that sitting in front of your computer or sitting with your notepad or whatever, however you write, maybe there's too much pressure there. Now I will be like, I'm taking a walk or I'm having coffee and I'm going to hang out with this guy at the coffee shop for a while and know that this is part of the process. I'm going to go back in an hour or two and sit in front of that computer and do the work, but I need to not be sitting in front of that computer. I need to take a walk. I need to go out, take pictures. I need to do some activity that uh, clears my mind. You have to fool yourself into the work sometimes because it's so hard to write. Yeah, I think fool is the wrong term. I think that your subconscious has to operate. Yes. When people say, oh, it's so great. I get on the treadmill and I'm not thinking about it. You're not thinking about it, but your back of your brain is thinking about it. And so that's why if people have, whether it's taking a walk or golfing or sometimes the step away is the most powerful moment of discovery when they study epiphanies it's almost always in the shower taking a walk on a drive this happens with scientists or people working on a big problem it's often when they're away from it 
I used to work with someone who never understood that. So we'd be working on a problem and then, you know, small talk would come up and, but Hey, but we're working on this problem. It's like, no, this is exactly the wrong way to tackle this problem. Let people talk and have fun and let their brains be loose. And then we'll come back to it. And she couldn't trust that process. She just thought we're not working if we're not, you know, nothing would happen, but we'd all be very seriously working on this thing. And that felt like work to her. The best way to write new stand-up comedy is not to sit and look at a, a pad. It's to do something you've never done. You ride a horse for the first time. You eat a meal you've never eaten because immediately there's a sensory idea of observation of i've never ridden a horse this horse knows i don't know how to ride it like like right you immediately right begin to tell everybody everything about it why is this horse on his belly scratching his on pineapple spines and i'm everyone's running ahead of me like everything you have to talk about is built into just choosing a different experience Mm -hmm. I know that one of the hardest things for me as as a playwright and comedy writer was that I had this musical that I was collaborating with somebody and I couldn't accept that I was writing a musical. I was a closeted musical writer, Uh, right? I don't think you're the first one. (laughs) Well, (laughs) fair enough. Fair enough. Maybe that's what's going to make this a good musical. I think that's the history of musical theater for most of the existence. I think it it sums it up. But, But what was interesting was it was the collaborator that was a great musician and a great composer and who kept saying to me, no, you're a very good lyricist. And I said, I don't even know what, what that means. He goes, you understand what your characters are trying to say. You understand what it is that is heightened to a level that they, they can't talk about it anymore. They have to sing it. Mm-hmm. This is their greatest desire. And he protected me for myself, which was that he was making it singable and it's scanned right. And I don't know, even know where mysteriously the music came from. He created all the music as a composer. But after writing a dozen songs with him, now I didn't fool myself into thinking I could write one alone, but I was like, wow, that is a birthing process that I never expected. That baby has both of our features and you know, this may not be the greatest musical ever, but the fact was we made it. And so hearing those songs sung by people who could sing properly and all of that, I think that's the real art of creativity is when you don't get in the way of it. You let it come out. You take dictation for the characters. You let the story, you protect it from going off the rails. But for the most part, it's not about you it's not about wearing a judgment hat about if it's going to be good or bad right Uh, a friend of mine a novelist says it's you're the midwife and you just get out of the way you just help it be born that's a part of creativity that i think people don't consider one of the biggest mistakes i think people make when they're being creative and i'll put that in quotes is they feel like they have to do things and often you don't have to do anything i have been known to say to the television Stop helping. And here's what I mean. Actors do this a lot. For instance, if somebody's talking about a tragedy, a character's talking about a tragedy, uh, a loss or something, actors will often try to convince you through their performance that this is very sad. This is a very sad thing. So let me emote. Let me wear it out in the open, right? But if you watch people talk about sad or traumatic experiences, they're more bottled up. They don't, I think saying it sometimes is the same thing as reliving it. So you'll find that people will be more stoic and they don't try to convince you. That's partly what makes it sad. 
They used to say in the old days that if you don't, if you want the audience to cry, don't cry, get to the verge of it and they'll do it. And so I often see people helping be scary, helping something be funny, helping something be, it's like the line is funny. Don't just mean it when you say it, don't try to be funny. So there's something about creativity sometimes where you just do the task, you listen to the material and you're honest and it will work. And the more you do, the less effective it is. We like doing, we think doing helps us or is helping, helping the thing. Not doing is sometimes exactly, is exactly what you need to do. Don't do anything. I had a director uh, once in a play, uh, it was a few good men and I was supposed to do a drunk scene, which I couldn't do. First of all, I'm not an actor. Anytime I've ever acted, I felt like I was taking a job from an actor. Like <laughs> I was just, I was a guy in a suit walking around going, an actor could do this, right? I mean, I literally had no confidence as an actor, yeah. but, but I was playing the role of Daniel Caffey, a JAG lawyer in this Omaha Community Playhouse rendition. And there was a drunk scene and I acted, I mean, in rehearsal, I'm stumbling around drunk. And the director said, can I, can I just stop you for a second? He said, the most important thing to a drunk person in public is to act like they're not drunk. Yep. To try to convince you they have not been drinking. So that was a fantastic note. Yeah. If you're going to put the cap on the bottle, do it deliberately to a point. Don't, don't miss it. Do it extra carefully. You don't want the police to see you screwing the top right. on, right? I mean, yeah. it was a really, it was a grand note and a good note delivered well. Well, Chaplin, Charlie Chaplin was, got famous for playing drunk on the stage. Now, his father was an alcoholic. He was around it a lot. And for him, he, he said, well, it's a, kind of the same thing. He's like, two things. Drunk people are trying not to be drunk. And he also said they try to maintain their dignity. So they tend to articulate like this because they are, I am not slurring my words. Right, 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 right. But that's not helping, right? You're just like, okay, how do I not show being drunk? John Houston was directing The Misfits. Eli Wallach had a drunk scene. They were shooting it and a light blew or something and they had to stop shooting. And they were standing there. And John Houston just casually said, you know, the drunkest I ever was? And Eli Wallach's like, I don't know. And he goes, Yesterday, yesterday, I've never been so drunk as I was yesterday. Then he just kind of wandered off. And Eli Wallach was like, that's weird. He didn't seem drunk yesterday. Oh, I'm being too drunk. That was his direction. Stop being so drunk. <laughs> I got you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let me just turn the conversation briefly to personal hells. Okay. Right. In storytelling. And this, I think, takes us to places like the land of the dead and mm -hmm. other places. But just the importance of a character facing their own personal hell in terms of transformation. It makes an interesting story. And that conflict makes an interesting story. And internal conflict makes an amazing story. Why is Hamlet considered, you know, one of the best plays in English and one of the best Shakespeare plays, right? It's about internal conflict. To be or not to be. To... Right. It's about what's happening inside of Hamlet. It's, a, it's the hardest story to tell, man against himself. Those breakdowns, it's what man against himself, man against nature, man against man. My point is that other than man against himself, the thing is, all those things can be man against himself. And in fact, if it's good, it is. What's Jaws? Man against nature? Uh, oh, it's a shark. He's killing people, right? But you have a character who's afraid of the water. Facing his fear... You give the water teeth, you put them out in the ocean, and you go, now, deal with this. It has much more resonance 
because most of us are probably, hopefully, not going to go out and have to kill a killer shark. But all of us have something we're afraid of, that we're afraid to face. And all of us are going to have something that we are going to face that we don't want to. And so it has resonance. Often those, those things you don't want to do, they come up in life. A health diagnosis, somebody sick, you're sick, you know, whatever. Things happen. You lose a job. Oh, my God, this is a I wanted this job all my life and now I don't have it. And, you know, whatever it is. And so I think we need those stories because those are the the things that speak to all of us. If you do a story about somebody climbing a mountain, it better be about more than somebody climbing a mountain. Isn't that fear what people face when they're being creative and when they're writing? I know that you recently wrote a memoir, which was a powerfully personal thing. And it's facing not just the fear of the retelling, but facing the emotional reality that, that the writer's left alone with. Yeah, that's true. You know, because it's about my brother's murder. So here's the thing about trying to write a piece that hopefully has some emotional resonance. You can't write it if you don't feel it. The hard part for me, the thing I had to do every day was be prepared to feel that stuff and to go into it. I was lucky enough to go, well, this is a temporary thing and I'll go through this. One of the great things I thought is when I'm done with this, I can put all these feelings on a shelf. And so that allowed me to do it. Well, it's powerful therapy that even if the book weren't published, it has so much value. Mm -hmm. But the fact that you can brave, like it's so brave. And as it is with a great song or other things, when the listener can hear it, and it can allow them to take a journey on your bravery or your facing that fear. Oftentimes, love songs, breakup songs, people are listening to them over and over again because it's, it's expressing something they can't. You know, Frank Darabont, after he did Shawshank Redemption, said that he got lots of letters from people. Now, Shawshank Redemption is a very, about a very specific thing, right? Guy in prison, you know, all that stuff. But what's interesting is people wrote him letters saying this movie helped me through my divorce or helped me through this or helped me through that. Because what resonated was the what I call the armature, but the theme of get busy living or get busy dying. What are you going to do? You're going to give up now? You might as well be dead or you're going to move on with your life. The main character in that piece, I could argue that Morgan Freeman is the main character of the piece. But Andy Dufresne, who appears to be the main character anyway, has this unbelievable optimism. No matter what happens to him, he has this unbelievable, almost supernatural optimism. He's able to bring beauty into this place of ugliness, into this prison. With that, keep saying, and even no matter how bad things get, when they put him in solitary confinement, they can't, they can't break him. So there is the idea of getting busy living. Like, you're not going to change my attitude. You're not going to make me, you're not breaking me. And I think that's what helps people. I'm not surprised that people who have been through a divorce write him. Because if you've been through a divorce, you get it, right? <laughs> you know. But if it were just about some guys in prison, who would care? It isn't just about people in prison. It's about can you maintain hope in a hopeless situation? And that lesson is a universal thing in a lot of ways, no matter what it is. My family was in Louisiana when Katrina came through there. And months later, you see a small town in Kansas Tornado wipes out three houses. That's their Katrina. Somebody loses somebody to a COVID death. That's their Katrina, that moment, right? Yeah. And it's easier when it's all over the news and we all feel it together. But 
the fact is is that your things can be taken away from you there are steps but what can't be taken away from you is how you respond what it is you own is your reaction to things yeah and we can't be reminded about that enough no we right can't. it's i wrote something this morning about i'm a half glass half full guy mm-hmm. and so i like to say pour that into a smaller glass it'll make you feel better right away right <laughs> right because there is a way to have a perspective of of something being positive and believe me it's very very difficult sometimes it is especially in the moment we're in in time in economy in health in this is my first pandemic so i'm not sure how it's supposed to go Um, (laughs) but this is a story i'd I'd like to know the outcome of yeah let's get back to story for just a second because it's i I want a couple more Mm -hmm. things from you Mm -hmm. um one of the reasons we call this uh creativity and captivity is not because of the you know being sheltered in place it's more about having a brief moment in time with a creative person uh-huh. so we're able to study you under a microscope <laughs> i just like if you can reveal a few things to me all right, right okay story versus plot i think some people as simple as that sounds don't understand there's a difference can you share that difference that's not a definition i i think about much <laughs> Okay, and you can tell me why, but but I mean, I think people plot things out, and sometimes it doesn't even have a story no, attached I think to that's it. True. Yeah, it's it, they're the incidents. Then this happens. Then that happens. Then this happens. And then I had a guy pitch me a story one time, and it was a bunch of this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens, and then and it seemed to go on forever. It was the most boring story of, and then this happened, and then this happened, and this happened, and and it was a journey. So he, he tells this story, goes on and on. It's like it was a movie idea he had. And it was like you were watching this boring movie because it just went on. It was like an hour of and then this and then this. And then at the end of it, he goes, and, and then they have to go back. And then he starts to, it's like, oh, my God. <laughs> right. And it was interesting to him for some reason. But there were no characters that he mentioned. There was nothing it was about. Right. So. If it's Jaws and you go, it's a guy and he's got to get a shark and then this happens and then that happens. Who, who cares? It's a guy, you know, the, that, that main character's last line is, you know, I used to hate the water because that's what the whole thing is about. There's a great thing in Shawshank because it could just be about dudes in prison. Oh, and prison's hard, right? Okay. That's, yeah, prison's hard. It could be that, but it's it's not that, right? Is is this place going to break you? Is what it is. Are these situations going to break you? And what one of the things I love in Shawshank is this idea that it's get busy living or get busy dying. I, in fact, I had a student once swear to me that there was no theme in Shawshank. There's no theme in Shawshank. I'm like, I think there is. I don't think so. You know, it's very adamant that there was no theme there. But it's get busy living or get busy dying. And there's an interesting thing with the old man Brooks in that movie. Brooks has been in the prison a long time and gets out and has a horrible time out there. doesn't know how to do anything out there. The world is all different. He barely seen cars when he was a kid, you know, when he went in. Now they're everywhere. And, you know, he gets his crappy job where he's bagging groceries and, you know, being treated like a kid, even though he's a grown man kind of being yelled at. And he's in this apartment and he doesn't like, he doesn't like anything. And there's a narration, there's narration and he's putting on a suit and the, and his voiceover is saying, you know, that he doesn't like it and that he's decided to leave. He says, you know, I doubt they'll kick up any fuss for an old man like me. And then he, he has a suit on and he carves on the beam. Brooks was here 
and he hangs himself. Later on, Morgan Freeman gets out, has the same crappy job, right? Same apartment, same crappy job. Everything's the same. But what Morgan Freeman's character does is, and the voiceover is the same. I've decided not to stay. I doubt they'll kick up any fuss for an old man like me. And he carves next to Brooks was here, so was Red. But what Morgan Freeman's character does is get busy living. He gets on a bus and he goes to meet his friend in Mexico. He gets he gets busy living, right? Those are two people in exact situation, same situation. And one decided to get busy dying and one decided to get busy living. The thing that makes it a story is that it has something inside of it that is universal, a reason to tell it, a reason to tell the story. A plot is a Mission Impossible movie. I don't want to bag on Mission Impossible movies. I know people like them, but but a lot of those movies are this happens, then this happens, then this happens, then this happens, then this happens. The end. Okay. I I couldn't tell you one from the next. Well, let me simplify this question, which will help overall, is just sort of in a bite-sized golden nugget, tell me what a story is. A story is uh, the telling or retelling of a series of events leading to a conclusion, meaning having a point. Right. It's very important that it have a conclusion. Yeah, that it have a reason to be told. And then leapfrogging, uh, let's just briefly talk about how a story gets dramatized. What makes a story drama? Well, the word drama, it means to do. We think of drama as comedy versus drama, which is not the way the Greeks broke it up. They didn't break up comedy and drama. They broke up comedy and tragedy. They were both under the umbrella of drama. So comedy is also drama. People misuse that. So drama means to do. So what that really means is to demonstrate. If you're saying that some things are more important than money and you tell the story of King Midas, you're dramatizing that idea. And this is the difference really between print and theater too. In theater, you're also bringing that drama to life. Right, right. But I would say that that's true. If you look, if you say... Some things are more important than money. Well, now you're just preaching to me. But if you show it to me, and I think I've drawn the conclusion on my own, I always think of it like like this, like people think that stories have a theme. I remember learning that, you know, as a kid, like, oh, your story has to have a theme. And what happens is people create a bunch of events and then they try to have a theme. They try to fit a theme in there. They try to work it in. But a story doesn't have a theme. A story is a theme. A story is the manifestation of the theme. So if you're trying to say some things are more important than money, then the things you create around it are things that help you dramatize that idea. If you're trying to say that you can be a good person under the worst circumstances, then things you, the things you create around it are trying to dramatize that idea. And that's a mistake people often make. They, they come up with all the scenes and the characters and all of that, and then they try to shoehorn a, a theme in and it doesn't work. That's why things feel tacked on because they're tacked on. Well, one of the things we like about this show is that we think people who are listening are people who are actively creating or want to be more creative. So I would hope that maybe you could give us a a little bit of an assignment, something that would help people, whether it's storytelling or creativity, that might be some act of courage they can do immediately, right, this week. No, yeah, sit with the idea of your personal health. Sit with the idea of the thing, talking to writers now, you would rather almost die than do. Really think about that and write that down. 
And a lot of emotions will come up. And if you are writing stories, your character's personal hell has to be that deep. So if your character's personal hell isn't that deep, then you are not going there, which is a big mistake. So go there for yourself and go, wow, that's, I really wouldn't want that. I really wouldn't want to confront that person. I really wouldn't want to be in that situation. I really wouldn't want to, for instance, uh, the King's speech, which is a good movie. I think the King's speech is a personal hell story. The last thing this guy wants to do is be in front of people and talk. Right. Um, And you can feel it. It's palpable. You know, whether you have that fear or not, doesn't matter. It's a palpable feeling. It's the worst thing in the world for this guy. He's, you know, a stammerer and he's got a, he's a public figure and he's got to give these speeches and it's the last thing he wants to do. And he's got to hold the country together during war and all that. Like it, you know, he has a lot of responsibility and he has this huge fear that he has to confront and you feel it. And I think that first find it in yourself and then understand that it has to be that important to your characters. But yeah, I would say look for that in yourself and always look for that. And it might change as you get older. It might be a different thing. You may have faced that thing and gotten over it, but there's always another thing to be afraid of. That would be my assignment. That's a good one. That's a big assignment, but I that's, I think it's valuable. Oh, good. Because I think that we want to do the light lifting. Everybody wants yeah, to yeah. do the quick housework and <laughs> not do the heavy lifting. But I'm so grateful for that as a an assignment for all of us, which is to look a little deeper inside and find out what it is we're afraid of or what might transform us and sit with it, just as Brian is sitting with us today. <laughs> That's how you wrap a show. Oh, up, I see what you see. did. I, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, but I'm not afraid of you, buddy. Um, <laughs> what I want to do is encourage people to discover you, to listen to your podcast. You are a storyteller to find that, to read your book, Invisible Ink, to do, to read the golden theme, to look up your illustrated graphic novel, Old Souls. There's so many, they're great stories, but they're told in a great way. And I think to be original in, in how you tell a story you should be reading more original writers, not being derivative of what you see on television. So I'm grateful for your friendship. I'm grateful for your advice and this conversation as well, Brian. Thanks for for joining us today. Thanks. This was great, man. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe and you will always have an invitation to join us for more creative conversations that offer a spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative under whiz-bang producer Amanda Rosenberg with editing by soundsmith Casey Franco. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp. Please feel free to reach out with your input or to share a review through social media on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityandcaptivity.fun. That's right, it's dot fun because dot com is not fun. Cheers. <laughs>